0: We're glad you've decided to join us this morning for the study of God's Word. I want to call your attention to chapter 4 of Ephesians, verses 17 through 19. Now, if you happen to have the King James Version, you'll see the word, therefore, which points us back for a foundation to that which we have already studied. We're going to figure out now in today's lesson... How do we demonstrate to rulers, authorities, and the watching world the manifold wisdom of God from chapter 3, verse 10? Then how do we walk worthy of our calling from chapter 4, verse 1? How do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Verse 13, excuse me, verse 2, and then how do we become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ in verse 13? Verses 17 through 24 give us a foundation for Christian conduct. Paul's practice in his writings is to give a principle and then to give examples of how to live out that principle. He never leaves us in the dark with regard to specific examples for our Christian conduct. If each member of the body is going to exercise his or her gift to build up the body in love, we're going to have to recognize the fact of a new creation. We're going to take a look today as we consider this, the condition of the people in Ephesus to whom Paul is writing, the cause of their condition, and the consequences that come from that. Now we want to take a look at the condition with the contrast of their condition and the condition of Christians. Here's the verse, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Since all the issues of life flow out of the heart, that means that a Christian must enter into a new way of thinking. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Now, I may not be what I think I am, but what I think I am. So it's very important, what I think. And that can be a scary thought if we're not thinking God's way the right way. His thoughts are not our thoughts, so we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when we become a new creation in Christ, we are given the mind of Christ so that we can accomplish that through the study of His Word. It's going to take some putting off of some old thoughts, some putting on of the new, so that we can be created like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now this is the reason God inspired Paul to write this epistle. And it's the reason we're studying it this morning. Without this new way of thinking, there's no hope whatsoever for the predicament that mankind finds itself in. Even in a highly sophisticated culture like ours, we can preach abstinence, we can preach marriage between a man and a woman, we can preach compassionate capitalism, or a merciful multiculturalism, or anything we want to preach, but it's not going to help unless we have the right way of thinking. The Bible talks about sometimes the mind and the heart being synonymous as a man thinks in his heart, and that's what we want to consider this morning. Here's the reason the surrounding culture just doesn't get it when we give them the message. We are to give the message when God touches their heart through their spirit. They will get it, but here's the problem. Verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. The thinking of unbelievers is futile. It is today. It was back then in Paul's day. We know that as we see Paul coming to the seat of intellectualism in Greece in Acts 17 and verse 19, and they took him, Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Now that's Mars Hill in Athens where the Greek Supreme Court convened, and that's where the elite intellectuals would sit around and discuss all the philosophies of the day and everything else. They took him to the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what is this new teaching you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up and told them about the God who made the world and everything in it and the God who gives to all men life and breath and everything else. The reason they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas was that the old ideas didn't work and the current ideas didn't work. So they were always looking for something new that was going to fit reality, that was gonna be the answer to man's plight here on the earth, that was going to make some sense out of life. Proverbs thirteen twelve: Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. As evidence of the fact that the souls of men, unbelievers, are spiritually blinded, and that that brings despair, we see even in our own nation the suicide rate steadily rising. On the average, we have about 117 self-induced deaths every day. That would be a total of 42,700 Americans in a year taking their own lives. For each one of those who die, there would be 25 others who attempt to take their life. That makes over a million. The annual cost of suicide is $44 billion. Many people are in despair. Many people cover that up where maybe you wouldn't tell, but inside their heart, they just don't have the answers. Their thinking is futile. Well, we see from the scripture that man is thirsty. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God, says the psalmist. And again in Psalm 107, he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He has filled with what is good. And then Jesus speaking in Revelation 21.6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. Our lesson today is pertinent to people in our culture because unbelievers in the Western world are in exactly the same condition as those in Paul's day in Ephesus and in the Roman Empire in general. In Romans 1, uh, Paul talks about that, and we'll look at that. Peter Jones examines the current culture in America, comparing it to that of ancient Rome. His book is entitled, One or Two, Seeing a World of Difference, and here's what he says. Rome was invaded by the religions of the East, so that pagan syncretism and religious tolerance produced in the Roman Empire, in the words of one historian, a common interfaith world religion. Rome was sports and entertainment mad and choking on sexual excess. Rome dominated the civilized world politically and created a global empire. And we see Paul speaking to that in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is talking about the fact that unbelievers turned from the worship of the Creator to the worship and glorification of the creation and of the creature. God became one with the creation, and that's where he gets his title of his book, Pantheism, Everything is God and God is in Everything. Along with that, in the ancient world, came sexual immorality And then it says God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done. Notice the darkened and depraved mind, the futility of their thinking. As evidence of our complicity in this, Jones cites the hate crimes bill passed by the United States House of Representatives on April 29, 2009. The bill identifies a new class of federally protected people under the civil rights laws, including drag queens and kings, transgenders, cross-dressers, exhibitionists, voyeurists, sadomasochistic leather bondage participants, various fetishes that I won't mention, lesbians, gay men, pansexuals, and pedophiles. They are now protected by the law even as they were in the ancient Roman Empire. Even an amendment to exclude pedophiles from these protected classes was voted down. Now in 2007, there were five murders out of 16,929 that were classified as motivated by a bias against sexual orientation. I wonder how many of those other 16,924 murders were motivated by hate probably every one. But we are not so interested in them because as Richard Phillips has stated, androgyny and homosexuality are now the sacrament of neo-pagan rebellion against God. We're living in a new day now where we have gone back to the days of the ancient Roman Empire. The thinking of men and women without God is ultimately vain, empty, futile, pointless, and worthless. Now they may sound very intellectual and erudite, and their ideas may seem promising for a while, but in the end it is rubbish. You can think of the philosophies of Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Hitler, all based on the erroneous ideas of one Charles Darwin, the survival of the fittest, Their philosophies and their theories are kind of like a giant soap bubble on a beautiful day. You can see the reflection of the colors of the rainbow in that bubble, and all of a sudden it pops, and it's gone. And someone else has to step up to blow a new bubble in its place. We have seen the Enlightenment, Romanticism, Positivism, Naturalism, Nihilism, Pragmatism, Existentialism, and Postmodernism. But then after a while, that next bubble pops and the people have to suffer and millions die as in the world wars because of the bogus ideas that some man thought up that were going to solve the problems of mankind. Don't be intimidated when you see some supposedly brilliant atheist spouting some foolishness on a TV talk show. It's ironic that even the booze hounds and potheads out on the street give the same reasons for not believing in God as these great intellectuals give. They just put it in different terminology. So any talk that comes that's offering an explanation for who we are and why we're here and where we're going, if it doesn't come from Christ, if it's not supported through His Word, it's going to turn out to be foolishness. It's foolishness in the eyes of God. Probably we could say their theology is dictated by their morality. They don't want a God telling them what to do. They don't want His Ten Commandments. Ephesians 4.17 in the King James Version, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind." This word testify doesn't mean that Paul is calling on God as his witness. It doesn't mean that he's just giving an opinion as he states he is in 1 Corinthians 7.12. Testify is a legal term and it's saying here that Paul has access to the mind of the Lord. His statement is divinely inspired. It's spoken by one who has full authority as an apostle and he's bringing a word from God. His advice is not optional for us. Now, in a day of tolerance and open-mindedness, that's not what people want to hear. Everyone should be due his or her own opinion, they think. According to the Gentiles, your opinion should be your own business and not that of the church. But Paul begins on a firm negative note. Just don't do it, he says. Henceforth, do not walk as the Gentiles. Negative commands are given in the Scripture. You can think of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. And those who are affected by the fall into sin need those negative commands. We need those negative commands. Just don't do this. Do this instead. And that's what Paul tells us. Now your walk simply refers to your life. It's the way you live. It's the way you conduct yourself, behave yourself. It's the general trend of your life, including the outward behavior and the inner motivations. The word henceforth contains the gospel in a nutshell. You used to live and think like the Gentiles. You might used to wish you could live like the Gentiles but you were restrained perhaps by God's common grace or you may have enjoyed watching some movie vicariously living like the Gentiles but now you are a new creature, creation. We don't live and don't think like the unbelievers think. We have a new mind and we have a new heart. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now, there is a process where we are progressively becoming more like Christ and less like our old self. So it doesn't just happen all at once, but the means to be able to accomplish that does happen when we are given a new heart. What is the condition of the Gentiles? How do they walk? Why do they walk that way? They walk in the futility of their minds. We have already studied in Ephesians 2 a general description of, of unbelievers, they are dead in trespasses and sins. they walk according to the course of this world. We would expect them to. But Ephesians four gives us a much sharper focus with regard to the inner condition of an unbeliever's heart. They're suffering from vanity of mind, or in a modern translation, futility of their thinking. Unless we understand this principle of the way unbelievers think, we may become frustrated and discouraged in our efforts to evangelize because God has to turn the light on for them. He will use the gospel as we share it, but only the Spirit can turn their hearts. Vanity, mataiatis is the word, refers to that which is aimless and pointless, the word means failing to reach the goal, in this case, owing to sin. Mattiatis' vanity in this verse does not describe a theoretical condition. The plight of the pagan in his thinking is like that of a man who is out on a dark and stormy night in the deep woods and he doesn't have a light, a map, or a compass. But he's on a trail and he is sure that that trail is going where he wants to go. His mind is darkened. He can't see. Now, he might possess all kinds of knowledge from various disciplines, but he's still lost. It doesn't make any difference what he knows in terms of secular understanding. It's not going to help him in eternity. The mind here verse 17, represents not only the intellectual capacity of an individual, but the emotions, the thought, the conscience, the reason. We're talking about the entire soul of man. He's got a problem here. It's the futility of his thinking. Everything he thinks, apart from Christ, is empty, futile, worthless, and fruitless in the end. It may look pretty good for a while, but in the end, it's not going to work. We are promised so much by the neo pagan intelligentsia, but in the end, they deliver nothing. How could so many people be so fooled? Well, here's the reason. And we take a look at the cause of this futility of the mind Satan likes to keep his slaves so busy that they don't have time to think. Do you have time to think? you ever take time to really think about life and Scripture and application? I know that you do because you study the Word. When unbelievers think, if they ever take time to, they have another problem. Their thinking is corrupted. They don't see things accurately as they really are. Here is why people do not believe in God. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. The blindness of their heart. Porosis. The word for blindness comes from poros, which is a kind of a stone. And it actually means to be petrified. To petrify. Modern translations render that word hardening. The hardening of their heart. And their hearts, we would say, are spiritually petrified, just like the hearts of those that Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 11. And I shall give them one heart, says the Lord, and shall put a new spirit within them, and I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Notice it's God who has to perform the heart surgery to get this petrified heart out and a new living heart transplanted. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts in a modern translation. Now there are four clauses here, two general And then the second two describe what happens when the understanding is darkened. We see the understanding is darkened, and then when that happens, a person has ignorance within him, and then the hardening of his heart, and that's why they are separated from the life of God. The mind, in verse 17, we noted, refers to the entirety of the soul of man. In this verse 18, it's pointing to the intellect, the reasoning power, not the emotions, not the feelings. The mind of man is darkened or blinded. Our home in Alabama lay in a beautiful valley. Some of you have been there. And when the sun was coming up early in the morning, a beautiful day like this, you could see the sun across the road over on Beaver Mountain. It was a beautiful sight. But on some days, you couldn't see Beaver Mountain. You couldn't even see the road in front of our house running down through the valley because there was a fog, an early morning fog, a mist had settled in the valley. Now if someone were there and I were trying to describe to him the mountain across the street, I might not even be able to make him believe that there was a mountain over there because you couldn't see it. You could only see the mist and that's the way it is with the minds of unbelievers. There's a mist, there's a veil in front of their eyes. Paul talks about that. Second Corinthians 3.13, we need to get the entirety of this little passage. And we're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whatever a man, whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Hallelujah. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. A couple of chapters later, he talks about why we have this veil over our thinking. Second Corinthians 4, 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now God has to take that veil away, but He's going to do it through our efforts because we are the appointed means to bring light to these people. The problem is in their mind. They can't see. Even though they're looking at it, they can't see it. The most disastrous effect of the fall is in the mind of man. There's a biblical word for this condition. Fool. Fool. Paul talks about it in Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Isaiah talks about it even back in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death Upon them hath the light shined. Fast forward to Isaiah 60. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. It's Christ, the Messiah, the light of the world. Sin in Scripture is always associated with darkness. You can't see in the dark, John 3:19, And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. We want to love the light, and especially the light of God's Word. The work of the preacher is not to entertain people, it's to turn them to the light. Christ has the answers to men's problems. John 8, 12. Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now we must ask ourselves this question. With the world's knowledge increasing at an exponential rate, how is it that so many people can't see it? They can't see the truth. We have to go back to Genesis for the answer. When Adam sinned in the garden, something happened there that affects all of us. The reason is in God's providence, Adam acted as federal head of the human race. We know about that. We've studied about that. God elected Adam to represent all of us in Adam's decision to obey God or to disobey God. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one many shall be made righteous. What precisely happened to Adam that would have caused sin and death to reign over the entire world? Disobedience brings a certain consequence in a person's life. And part of the spiritual blindness is they can't see that consequence. They can't see it for themselves as individuals. They can't see it for the nation. But here's what it looks like. You would be familiar with this. Lust came in the body as a result of man's sin. The penalty was that for the body, of course, was the death penalty. The mind, now, was struck with pride. We don't need anybody telling us what to do. We can eat this fruit if we want. In fact, we're smarter than everybody else, so we don't need any coaching or any advice. And if you will elect us to office, we will pass laws and appoint uh, appoint justices in the courts so that we can tell all of the common people how to live. Because the common people just don't get it. Unfortunately, that last part is true. But nobody gets it unless you have Christ and the Word of Christ. Oh, it may be very sophisticated, but they still don't get it because there's only one hope for mankind and that's the blood of Christ. What do you think the penalty is for the mind? You already know the mind is darkened. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. They just don't see it. The cross of Christ is foolishness to them. They don't understand truly spiritual things. Now, there are a lot of spiritual things being proposed in our day and time, but not the true spirituality of the gospel. So we see that the result for the will is the will now obeys self. When Adam sinned, his, his will became chained to his desires, which apart from Christ is going to be governed by lust. The will is going to choose whatever that person really likes. If they like pharisaical religion like the Pharisees, they'll choose that. They might look pretty good on the outside, but they'll choose what they like. The body and the mind are going to be liking the wrong things because they are governed by lust and pride. And so we see that there's a reason why people have addictions to whatever the addiction may be. They keep on choosing what they like and body chemistry gets acclimated to it and they're stuck. They can't get out. Now somebody says, now wait a minute, that sounds like Calvinism. Aren't we supposed to have free choice? Well, yes, but when man sinned, the will begins to obey self. They're separated from the life of God. I don't think anybody separated from the life of God is going to make too many good choices. It might be like the blind squirrel that finds an acorn sometimes, but it's not going to be working out too well. Here's the way it works and the thought comes from Augustine. You're free to choose what you like, but you're not free to like what you ought to like because of the result of sin down inside my soul. That's a problem. If you want to call it free will, that's okay, but that's not what Martin Luther called it. He called it the bondage of the will, which is the title of the book that he wrote about it. So here's the ultimate cause of man's condition. His mind is darkened, void of any true spiritual understanding. So his will becomes separated separated from God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now quickly, we want to conclude with the consequences of this kind of thinking. Those whom we would call the great philosophers have diligently searched throughout known history for goodness and beauty and truth and all of those things that we desire in life. They've looked for those things through the ages. How well are they doing? Well, we might sum it up with a well-known quote from Shakespeare's drama Macbeth. Quote, The days creep slowly along until the end of time, and every day that's already happened has taken fools that much closer to their deaths. Out, out, brief candle, life is nothing more than an illusion. It's like a poor actor who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is never heard from again. Life is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That sounds pretty negative. What is left? Well, here's what's left. Epicureanism. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Notice the text. Every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. When other philosophies fail, some people turn to Epicureanism. The greatest good is the highest pleasure. Find your favorite sensual enjoyment and just dive right in. But make your reasons for so doing sound philosophical if you can. Now, many people get into Epicureanism without ever giving any thought to philosophy because it appeals to our natural inclinations. That's where we are in America today. That's where we were in ancient Greece and Rome with Plato, Aristotle, Nero, and many, many others. Many whom we look to as the great philosophers. I want to close with a quote from Solomon Shaw. He wrote a book in the late 1800s entitled, Dying Testimonies of Saved and Unsaved. There are some pretty interesting things in his book. I don't know how he compiled all of this, but here is Sir Francis Newport, the head of an English atheist club, as he spoke to those gathered around his deathbed. You need not tell me there's no God, for I know there's one, and that I am in His presence. You need not tell me there's no hell, I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, Cease your your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, that I could lie for a thousand years upon the fire that is never quenched to purchase the favor of God and be united to Him again. But it is a fruitless wish. Millions and millions of years will bring me no nearer the end of my torments than one poor hour. Oh, eternity. Eternity forever and ever. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. Do you believe the gospel? If you don't, it's because of the darkness of the heart, the darkness of the mind. That's the reason. Cry out to God for mercy. Repent of sins and turn to Him. That's the message. He wants to give you a new heart and a new life and the mind of Christ so that you can understand these things and so that you can think on whatever is true and noble and just and pure and lovely and things that are of good report and things that are virtuous and praiseworthy. And then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need to equip us for life and godliness. And you have also equipped us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all the things that you have commanded us. Lord, when we think about a person dying apart from you, separated from the life of God... I pray that our hearts would be touched with compassion and mercy. I pray that our motivation would be renewed to share the gospel. Lord, help us to have mercy on unbelievers who can't see it. Help us to keep sharing it with them. Help us to know that we are the appointed means of bringing light to these people. Thank you for this great responsibility. Thank you that you give us the grace with which to do it. We ask you now to guide us in our prayer time and remind us of things about which we need to pray. And I ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.